Good morning. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13, where we're going to be looking at verses 20 to 25, focusing specifically on verses 20 and 21, the closing here of the letter. Hebrews 13, verses 20 to 25 is where we'll be this morning. And let's pray together uh, as we come now to the hearing of God's Word. So I ask that you pray with me. Father, we thank you for the precious and good gift of the Word of God that reveals to us who you are, and it reveals to us the Lord Jesus Christ and proclaims to us the truth of the gospel and the good news of Christ crucified and resurrected for sinners. We ask now that you would give us ears of faith to hear the Word, Father, and to stand upon it and to rest upon it, Father, to believe it by faith. Father, we ask that you would strengthen the faith of those who belong to you this morning. We pray that you would grant faith, the miracle of the new birth, to any who do not yet know Christ. Pray that you would give me grace, Father, to speak things that are accurate and clear and faithful and true from the Scriptures, that you would keep me from error, that you would give us all discernment, God, that we would be able to hold fast to the truth all the way to the last day. We pray this in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Well, over the last year or so, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. If you're visiting Midtown or if you're new to our church, we, our regular practice is to just start in chapter 1 of a book of the Bible and preach all the way through to the end, however long it takes us. I'm not really sure how long that's going to take sometimes, but however long. Just start at the beginning, go all the way through to the end. Over the last year, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and today we come to the final passage, the closing benediction of the letter. In many ways, the author ends this letter to the Hebrews in the same way that most other New Testament letters end. If you scan through the passage, you'll find a familiar form for closing an epistle. Look at the text with me just briefly, and you'll see what I mean. In verses 20 and 21, there is the closing benediction expressed as prayer and praise to God. Then in verse 22, there is an appeal to receive the letter for what it is, a means of encouragement for Christians. Then verses 23 and 24, there are various personal updates and the final greetings. And then verse 25, there's the closing pronouncement of grace for the people of God. Now, if you were to go and look at the conclusion of other New Testament letters, like 1 Thessalonians or Colossians, you would find many of those same elements. Greetings, benediction, and prayer. In that sense, the closing of Hebrews follows a familiar form. It's similar to what we see in other letters. But in another sense, the closing of this letter is unique, not for its form, but for its content. This is especially true of the benediction in verses 20 and 21, which is where we're going to focus this morning. Notice how much truth the author packs into just two verses. Verses 20 and 21. There's God's identity as the God of peace. There's the Lord Jesus' resurrection, His leadership of His people, His new covenant sacrifice. There's God's work to sanctify us and then our calling to live lives pleasing to God. Friends, that is an incredible amount of truth packed into one benediction. In fact, one commentator has called the benediction of Hebrews the most beautiful and one of the most theologically rich in all of the New Testament. And that's probably an understatement. 
So the form may be familiar, but the content of this passage is uniquely rich. And that richness, friends, should clue us into the significance of these verses. This benediction does more than simply close the letter. This benediction is meant to preach. These verses proclaim to us one final time the encouraging truths of the Gospel that have defined the book as a whole. You see, that's the beauty and the blessing of this particular benediction. It gives us profoundly deep Gospel truth in condensed, memorable form. In fact, if you were to memorize verses 20 and 21, you would have a powerhouse of Gospel encouragement always ready at your fingertips. I'm going to say some other things related to application today, but maybe that one is the most important point of application. Memorize these two verses. That's the author's goal in ending this letter as he does. He's not just wrapping up. He's sending us out armed with encouragement so that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us. So with that purpose in view, our plan for this morning is really quite simple. I want to work through verses 20 and 21, phrase by phrase, highlighting five gospel encouragements. Five gospel encouragements. Each one is addressed directly to us as believers so that we might hear these encouragements as the life-giving truths that belong to us. So I'm trying to... Even the way that I'm phrasing them, I'm trying to do it so that we hear these things as belonging to us. I hope that I want us not just to think of these as points in a sermon, but as part of our inheritance with Christ, given to us by the grace of God. If you're in Christ this morning, then these truths belong to you. I pray that that reality would strengthen us today so that we might persevere as we run together the race of faith. So, I invite you to follow along with me as we read. From God's Word, beginning in verse 20, this is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. God, give us grace now to hear his word as we ought. As we said a moment ago, we're focusing on five encouragements from the benediction in verses 20 and 21. The first is found in that opening phrase, we belong to the God who saves. We belong to the God who saves. As the benediction begins, you'll notice the author identifies God as the God of peace. Now that's a somewhat frequent title for God in the New Testament. It's frequent enough that we might be tempted to just keep on reading. Plus, peace is one of those biblical words we use a lot, but we rarely slow down long enough to define what we mean. And so the result is we tend to breeze past 
statements like this, thinking to ourselves, yes, the God of peace, I know that, but what's next? Where's the meaty stuff? But that mindset misses the magnitude of the author's address to God. To put it very plainly, friends, we should be astonished this title doesn't say the God of judgment. We should be astonished this title doesn't say the God of wrath or even the God of power. Considering the depth of our sinful rebellion against God, that's how we should expect to meet the Lord. Not in peace, but in terrifying judgment. And yet, that is not what we find. As we come to the close of this letter, we find our prayer addressed to the God of peace. You see, the peace in view here is not simply the absence of conflict. This peace has to do with salvation. Think of how the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Christ has reconciled all things to Himself by making peace through the blood of His cross. Did you hear how the Apostle connected peace and the cross? It has to do with salvation. Peace is the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ dying in the place of His people, bearing the wrath they deserved, and therefore reconciling sinners to the holy God. That's what the author of Hebrews has in mind when he calls God the God of peace. We belong to the God who saves. The God who reconciles sinners to Himself. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to move on too quickly from this. I know we've got five truths that we need to hit, but we also need to press this home a bit so that we feel the weight of this encouragement. So allow me to remind us, just for a moment, what all is entailed in knowing God as the God of peace. To know God as the God of peace means there is no hostility between you and God if you belong to Christ. There is no hostility between you and God. This is basic gospel truth, but God help us to never forget it. When Christ Jesus died on the cross, a divine transaction took place. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, took the sins of His people upon Himself, and the Holy God crushed His Son under the weight of His wrath. God treated Christ as if He had committed those sins. Can you fathom that? The sinless Son of God being treated as though He had lied or lost His temper or manipulated other people or ignored God or lusted after things He should not or mocked His Word or broke God's commandments. Every sin that every believer would ever commit, God placed upon His Son and then He crushed Him under His own wrath. And the good news of the Gospel is that Christ satisfied God's wrath. He absorbed it. He took it. And He cried out, it is finished because there is no wrath left. If you belong to Christ by faith, then He has satisfied God's wrath against your sin. And that pronoun your is significant. He bore your sins. Even the ones you can't fathom being known by other people. Even the sins that feel so shameful, you have a hard time shaking it even today. He bore those sins. And He didn't just bear them. He completely paid for them. So that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, believe that truth. There is no hostility between you and God. The Father is not angry at you if you are in Christ. 
He is not storing up judgment against you. All of the hostility has been dealt with once for all at the cross. This is what it means to know God as the God of peace. There is no hostility. To know God as the God of peace also means there's no barrier between you and God. No hostility and no barrier between you and God. Oh, how many times the book of Hebrews has given us this sweet truth. Through Christ, we have open, unhindered access to God. Right now, right now, you can go into His presence in prayer. You can draw near to Him through His Word. That's a staggering thought to know that you can come near to God. And what's more, God delights for you to do so. Try to grasp, try to grasp this just for a moment. Our God is the God of infinite joy. There is no end to the gladness that resides in the heart of God. If we think of Him as miserly or frowning or sitting around moping, we do injustice to Him. He is glad. Always glad. And do you know what makes His heart of joy beat most profoundly with gladness? You and I coming into His presence. That's how His fatherly heart works. When we draw near to Him by faith in Christ, He rejoices. He is the God of peace. He has made peace through Christ and therefore there is now no barrier between you and God. He wants to know you if you belong to His Son. Finally, to know God as the God of peace means your present life is marked entirely by mercy. No hostility, no barrier, and your present life is marked entirely by mercy. Mercy. If you belong to Christ, all that God gives you is mercy. Even the trials and the hardships are mercy from a loving Father. How are those things mercy? Because He's using all of them to do good to you. To conform you to the image of His Son. He's never punishing us. He's poured out all of our punishment on His Son at Calvary. He's always doing good Everything that He does for you is good, no matter what we face. And that, brothers and sisters, is mercy. 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 No hostility. No barrier. Nothing but mercy. That's what it means to know God as the God of peace. Oh, Lord, protect us from ever reading past those phrases, breezing on as if there were more significant things to come. That's the significant thing. To know God as the God of of peace. There is a world of gospel encouragement in that phrase, for it reminds us that we belong to the God who saves. That's encouragement number one. There's four more to go. The Bible's amazing. God is amazing. Encouragement number two we're led by an indestructible shepherd. We are led by an indestructible shepherd. Notice how the author continues on with a further description of God. He is the God who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So clearly the author has the resurrection in view, which is central to the good news of the gospel. This is the reason why we know God as the God of peace, because Jesus rose again on the third day, proving once and for all that His death has satisfied God's wrath. So without the resurrection, there is no gospel, there is no peace. It's central to the good news. What's striking here in verse 20 though, is how the author connects the resurrection with Christ's role as our leader. 
Notice how he calls the Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. We're familiar with Jesus being our shepherd because it's such a frequent image in the gospel accounts. We think of John 10 that Courtney read earlier in the service where Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. But in using this phrase, the author of Hebrews is not necessarily thinking about the gospel accounts. He's thinking about the Old Testament. If you think back to the Old Testament, you'll remember that God often spoke of Israel's leaders as shepherds. Moses is called a shepherd. The judges are said to have shepherded God's people. And even King David is called a shepherd. But most striking of all, God Himself is spoken of as the shepherd. Listen to what the Lord God said in Ezekiel 34. This is God speaking through the prophet. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. So at the heart of God's redemptive plan would be God's own work, His own personal intervention to shepherd His people and to lead them on. You see, that's how, that's how we would know salvation has come because God Himself would come and lead His people. Now, look back at verse 20 in Hebrews 13. When the author calls the Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, he's proclaiming the good news that in Christ, the living God, the triune God, the unseen, approachable, un unapproachable living God, that God has come to save and lead His people. That's the significance of the resurrection in verse 20. It establishes Jesus as the divine Savior who leads God's people to glory. At every step of the Christian life, the Lord Jesus is there at the front, leading us through the power of His indestructible life. Past, present, future, He's always leading. He's gone before us and has endured great suffering in order to blaze the trail to glory. He's presently interceding for us, carrying out His priestly ministry before the Father, and He will return again very soon to finally bring us safely to the heavenly city. Past, present, future, it doesn't matter. Wherever we find ourselves in the, faith, in the race of faith, we're never running alone. We're never running on our own. The Lord Jesus is there, and He's not just present, He's out in the front saying, follow me, run where I ran. See, I've already done all that you need. Follow me. And He's leading us on to glory. And what's more, His leadership cannot fail. Notice, I, I did not say that it will not fail. I said it cannot fail. There's a difference. There is no chance the great shepherd of the sheep will fail to lead us home. It is not possible. It cannot happen. There are some things that are impossible for God to do, like sin. That doesn't mean He's less than God. It means He's the pinnacle of perfection and power. Jesus cannot lose any of His people. It is impossible. How can we say that it's impossible? Because the God of peace brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. So apply the logic of the resurrection to your life. If Christ has defeated sin and death, then there are no enemies left that could possibly harm you. If He defeated death, there's nothing that this world could possibly do to harm you, ultimately. This is why Hebrews describes Christ's power as the power of an indestructible life. He cannot be thwarted, stopped, overthrown, challenged, he will lead you on to glory, safely 
to the heavenly city. He is the indestructible shepherd. Before we move on to the third point, I, I want to emphasize just one more thing here. Notice how the author says, Our Lord Jesus. Did you catch that when we read? He doesn't just say, The Lord Jesus, but Our Lord Jesus. I'm so thankful for that little word, our, because it reminds me of the real personal union between Christ and his people. Our Lord Jesus goes beyond mere knowledge, doesn't it? It brings to mind fellowship, communion, and quite simply, affection. He is our Christ. I wonder, brothers and sisters, do you see the gospel through that kind of personal lens? I'm not talking about making Christianity all individualistic. I'm talking about a depth of communion with Christ that gives birth to such affection so that you can't help but call Him our Lord Jesus. I want that kind of faith. Would you join me in praying together for that kind of faith and affection to mark our church? What what a witness it would be to have a church full of Christians whose relationship with Christ is marked by this kind, this kind of warmth and fellowship. That's a powerful witness. May God make it so among us for the glory of our Lord Jesus. That's encouragement number two. Let's look now at encouragement number three. We are secure in a blood-bought, unbreakable covenant. We are secure in a blood-bought, unbreakable covenant. As verse 20 continues, the author tells us how God brought Christ up from the dead. Notice he says, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So the author is recalling one of the key themes of the letter, the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ that established a new and better covenant. Now, if you, think, if you think about the book of Hebrews as a whole, it's the death of Christ that stands at the center of the book. Even just in terms of structure, the death of Christ stands at the center. The opening chapters proclaimed Jesus' identity as the unique and supreme Son of God. The closing chapters have emphasized our responsibility to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But what stands at the center? Chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. The death of Christ. His once-for-all sacrifice of Himself. You see, even, even the layout of the book teaches us something. At the center of God's purpose for this world, there stands a cross. And on that cross, the Son of God suffered and died, shedding His blood as the final sacrifice for God's people. Above all else, Christianity is the proclamation of the cross of Christ. If you do not know Christ this morning, or if you are just ex exploring Christianity, thinking about the things related to the faith, you need to hear this, that Christianity is above all the message of God become man, crucified and risen again for the salvation of sinners. That is the heart of the Christian faith. All that God did in the past was leading up to the cross. All that God is doing now flows from the cross. And all that God will do one day is because of the cross. To proclaim the Gospel is to preach the cross. To believe the Gospel is to cling to the cross. To cherish the Gospel is to rejoice 
in the cross. From beginning to end, Christianity is the proclamation of Christ and Him crucified. So when the author says here in verse 20, by the blood, he's not simply summarizing a theme. He's reminding us of the reason why we exist as God's people. It is only by the blood of Christ shed once and for all at the cross. Christianity is at its core the good news of Christ crucified. Now, even as the author mentions the sacrifice of Christ, you might have noticed he does so in a unique way. Look again at how he describes the covenant Christ established with His blood. He calls it the eternal covenant. Did you see that? By the blood of the eternal covenant. That's an unusual description for the new covenant. In fact, this is the only place in all of the New Testament where it is called the eternal covenant. And so, whenever something shows up only one time in the Bible, you would want to ask, Why is it here? What's the significance of this? Well, think about how the book of Hebrews has described the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is but a shadow of the good things to come. It is obsolete and passing away. It's limited, even temporary. The Old Covenant was instituted for a time, but that time has now passed. Better yet, that time has now been fulfilled. So if you wanted to capture the essential difference between the Old and the New Covenants, what word could you use? Eternal. You see, that's what the author's getting at. The covenant Christ has established is not a shadow, but the substance. It's not limited, but effective. It's not temporary, but eternal. It endures forever. Now think of what this means for us, brothers and sisters. Let's apply the eternal covenant to us, to our lives Remember, covenants are the basis for relationship with God. That's how humanity relates to God on the basis of covenants. And this particular covenant is eternal. I know we can't fully grasp eternity, but let's try as much as we can. This covenant that Christ established has existed as far back as eternity passed in the mind of God Himself. It did not come into being at the cross. It has always been the purpose and plan of God in His mind as far back as eternity passed. And this covenant will exist as far forward as eternity future. It has no ending point. It will never run out. And it cannot be replaced. So no beginning point and no end. That's the scope of the eternal covenant. Which means we are bound to God with an unbreakable bond. If covenants are the way that you relate to Him, and you relate to Him on the basis of an eternal covenant, it can never be broken. Your relationship with Him can never be broken. As far back as eternity passed, God has loved His people in Christ. As far back as eternity passed, He has loved His people. And as far forward as eternity future, God will love His people in Christ. And this love, this relationship cannot be broken For it is sealed with the blood of Christ, the eternal Son of God. So take comfort, brothers and sisters. If you have been born again by God's grace, there is nothing that can separate you from your covenant-keeping God. And just to make it a little bit more specific, you cannot do anything to end that relationship. No one else can do anything to end that relationship. And God will never end that relationship. He doesn't change His mind. In fact, it's just the opposite. He has bound Himself to you. By the blood of the eternal covenant, 
He has bound Himself to you through the blood of His Son. So for Him to turn His back on you, He would have to to turn His back on His Son. He would have to look the Lord Jesus in the face and say, your blood was not enough. I let this person go. Friends, that's blasphemy to say that God would do such a thing. He cannot turn away from you. If you know Him through Christ, you are bound to Him. He has bound Himself to you with the blood of His Son. Understand, friends, that so many of the promises we hold precious are rooted right here in this truth. Jesus promised us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then He went to heaven. How is it true that He will never leave us or forsake us? Because we are bound to Him in the eternal covenant. The Apostle Paul says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can that be? Because we are bound to God by the blood of Christ in the eternal covenant. Do you see the foundational nature of what he's saying here? All of the promises that we hold dear spring forth out of this truth. This is the reason why so much of the New Testament is good news for sinners like us. Because God has bound Himself to us by the blood of His Son. So take this truth to heart, brothers and sisters. Meditate on this. Embrace it by faith. Ask God to sink this truth down deep into your soul so that the roots of your faith might grow strong by His grace. We are secure in a blood-bought, unbreakable covenant. That's encouragement number three. Let's look at number four. We are completely equipped to do God's will. We are completely equipped to do God's will. So far, the author has been talking about God's work in Christ, how He raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. In verse 21, the focus shifts and the author now asks God to work in our lives. Notice what he writes in verse 21. May the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do His will. That word equip is significant. The idea is to be fully prepared or well-stocked, well-outfitted. That's how God works in the lives of His people. He doesn't send us out ill-equipped to run the race. He sends us out fully equipped, fully prepared. The author then goes on to emphasize this just a little bit more to say that God's equipping of us is complete. It lacks in nothing. Notice how he says, equip you with everything good. Everything good. Friends, that is an incredible statement. When God sends you out to run the race of faith, He doesn't send you with some meager supply. He sends you out with everything good so that you lack nothing. Think for a moment of all God has equipped you with as a believer. I'm going to list five things here in a second. And if you're a Christian this morning, by God's grace, through faith in Christ, then all five of these things are yours. He has given you His Holy Spirit who dwells now inside of you and is working constantly to conform you to the image of Christ. He has given you spiritual gifts that enable you to be useful to God and to others. He has given you His Word, His holy, inspired, life-giving Word that is able to make you wise and give you insight that reveals to you truth and proclaims to you the precious promises of the Gospel. He has given you His church, brothers and sisters in Christ who are committed to helping you run. And most astounding of all, He has given you Himself. So that wherever the race of faith takes you, it will never take you away from God. 
the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, the Bible, the body of Christ, and God Himself. Brothers and sisters, that is everything good. Everything good. As the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 1, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things. Nothing is excluded from all. By God's grace, we are well equipped to run. Then notice the end of the phrase. Why has God equipped us with everything good? So that we might do His will. You see, God's equipping of us is not only sufficient, it is purposeful. He doesn't simply command that we live for Him. He then provides what we need in order to follow those commands. This is why the Apostle John can say in 1 John 5, it's such a wonderful statement, that God's commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Why? Because God supplies everything good that we may do His will. Brothers and sisters, there will be seasons when the Christian life is a struggle. There will be times when the race of faith feels like it is entirely uphill and you've got no strength left to run. It may be that way for some of you right now. And that's why this encouragement is so particularly helpful. Even when we are at our weakest, God has given us what we need to follow Him by faith. He's equipped us with everything good. And this is how we keep running day after day, hill after hill, by believing God has given us this good supply and then depending upon His grace. We are completely equipped to do God's will. That's number four. Let's look at the last one. Encouragement number five from verse 21. We experience God's power at work in us. We experience... God's power at work in us. In the last half of verse 21, the author explains how God equips us to do His will. Notice what he writes. Working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Now, this this is honestly hard for me to capture the, the depth of the encouragement that the author is, is giving us here that the Scriptures are offering to us. But I'm going to try. The author is connecting our work for God and God's work in us. He's connecting our work for God and God's work in us. Notice the verb working at the beginning of the phrase. You see that working? That's the same verb the author used in the previous phrase when he said that we were equipped to do God's will. Our doing and God's working are from the same verb. It's the the same verb. And the author repeats it in order to make this point. Our working is God's work. Our doing of God's will is God's own doing in us. You see, this is the depth of God's commitment to His people. He not only supplies us with everything good, He then works in us so that we might do what is pleasing to Him. Our working is God's own work. This is why, brothers and sisters, it is good and right for us to run hard after holiness. This is right. This is why it's good and right for the author of Hebrews to tell us to put forth effort to know Christ. 
This is how God's power works out in our lives. I'm afraid that in our effort to prevent a salvation by works mindset, which we should rightly repudiate, in our effort to prevent that kind of salvation by works mindset, we've confused the nature of spiritual growth. And we tend to assume spiritual growth happens passively. That God will, God's power will simply come along at some point and zap us so that we're changed. So we tend to reduce our experience of God's power to individual moments. I'm just waiting for a big one. Maybe it comes on a mission trip or something. I'm just waiting for a big moment. But this passage corrects our misunderstanding. Spiritual growth is not passive, it's active. We experience God's power at work as we work to do His will. Our working is His working. So let me ask you, friends, do you want to experience God's power at work in your life? Do you want to see the Spirit bringing growth to your faith? I'm assuming that the answer is yes for everyone here. Do you want to see God's power at work? Do you want your faith to grow? then this passage is telling you to give yourself to what could be called the everyday Christian life. Just the everyday Christian life. Instead of looking for one incredible moment of God's power, recognize that His power comes in the simple, faithful life of today. Reading His Word, laboring in prayer, confessing sin, serving others, working hard at whatever our hands find to do, and investing in Christ's church. That's where God's power is seen, in those things. Those are not simply spiritual disciplines we should do if we want to be serious. They are the means through which God works out in us what is pleasing in His sight. So let's give ourselves to these things. And let's be encouraged that while we are giving ourselves to this work, the God who spoke creation into existence and the God who gave life to our dead hearts, that same God is working by His power in our working so that what is pleasing to Him would be seen in our lives. We experience God's power at work in us. So the book of Hebrews begins with a stirring declaration of God's work in Christ. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now the book of Hebrews closes with another stirring declaration of that same truth, that God is at work both in Christ and in us. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus equip you with everything good, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. From beginning to end then, it's all the work of God. He has spoken in Christ. He has accomplished salvation in Christ. And He's now working to bring us, His sons and daughters, to glory with Christ. Therefore, the most fitting conclusion to this series is the one our author provides at the end of verse 21. To God be glory through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your work in the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish 
the salvation that you purposed to accomplish in eternity past and you have brought it to completion in Christ. Thank you for the work you're doing now in the people of Christ that you have equipped us and you are working in us everything that we need to live a life that is pleasing to you. Father, help us to respond with hearts that are full of gratitude. Help us respond with faith that is purposeful and pursues you, Father. Help us to respond with praise and with worship for the glory of Christ's name among us. We pray in His name. Amen.